Welcome to the third episode of Safety at Work Talks podcast. My name's Kevin Jones. We had a really positive um, response to the first couple of episodes, and uh, thank you to all those listeners who uh, provided feedback. Uh, this episode is the second one that I recorded with um, Professor Sydney Decker um, up in Queensland. Sydney's well known in writing about um, human error, disasters, decision making, just culture, and a whole raft of other things. But a few years ago, he wrote a short article that was published in the Griffith Review, a university publication. And it came to my attention because it was a very different voice to what I'd normally heard from Sydney. And uh, he was telling an article, oh, the article was based around his uh, family's experience of losing a child. It was a really personal voice that I hadn't heard from Sydney before, so I really wanted to uh, have a chat to him and uh, discuss that article and uh, and the feelings and the thoughts that came behind it. Now, just curios- uh, curiously, um, Sydney, uh, so other people read this article from Sydney and decided that... Uh, you know, encouraged him to write a book and expand on that article, and that's what he's done with a book that came out earlier this year called The End of Heaven. Um, it's really well worth reading, and the uh, humanity behind it, the story of Sydney and uh, his wife and their uh, their child, was um, it provided a new framework that we don't often get in safety books. Anyway, I've rabbited on. Um, here's an interview with uh, with Sydney where we talk about the book. We talk about the uh, the original story, and uh, I just think it provides a, a different perspective on Sidney Decker, and uh, I found it really enjoyable to talk to him, and I hope you find it uh, good to listen to. One of the things, Sidney, in the book uh, End of Heaven, um, was that in the first chapter, you it starts with your... Uh, the start of your story about um, about your hospital visit twenty years ago with your with your wife after an accident, um, and then it swaps to a, a railway bridge incident of mm. the is the eighteen hundreds seventeen hundreds eighteen hundreds eighteen hundreds oh, yeah, I don't think we had trains in seventeen hundred, mm. um, and I I didn't know quite what I was letting myself in for by reading this book because it was very different. It wasn't the Columbia uh, the challenge of sort of O rings or Piper Alpha or all of those. Uh, examples that we perhaps learn at university or, or through other books. It was a very different approach. Um, what what was significant about this bridge incident that um, that justified including the book? So that's a very interesting question. I mean, first of all, of course, uh, I, I have to admit that there may be an issue with me as an author making a sudden transition <laughs> where you as a reader go, what? how did that happen? Right? Which is an interesting sort of editorial reflection and, mm-hmm. and it's... Um, I have yet to learn after all these books how to do that well, I suppose. There's always, you can always do it better. But um, but perhaps it isn't that. Perhaps it is the indeed the theme of the book. So, but the Tate Bridge disaster in Scotland is interesting because it happened sort of at, toward the end of a significant period of, um, of, of transition and change in how we were thinking about disaster and suffering. And... Um, uh, the, the the quote that that I think marks that out really nicely is uh, there was a Reverend Begg who um, who commented on the disaster, uh, the Taybridge disaster. There was a train going over a relatively I mean it's a Victoria Bridge, mm-hmm. but essentially well engineered. Although there were some other you know some issues that we can always go back to in terms of its construction that 
um, inserted, as we know now, you know, vulnerabilities into the design, these, these, these latent issues, you know, to speak yeah. with, uh, with uh, one of our, uh, one of our uh, colleagues' terms for these things. Um, the, uh, uh, but, but Reverend Begg had a very different explanation for why these people died. Now, the accident happened in 1879. And there was a, I mean, the height of the Victorian era, yeah. and, which is an era of significant engineering prowess and progress, as we know. Right? Brunel and others mm -hmm. contributed enormously to, to bridges and tunnels and, and sewerage and all and, kinds of things. And the railway network in the UK was a flagship. It was a model, uh, a model for yeah. India, for yeah. Australia, yeah. for the colonies, for, for, in fact, a large part of the world, the US. Yeah, yeah that's exactly right. So uh, a flagship, yeah, yeah, it's a point of pride. Um, here is Begg's explanation, right? So, um, uh, it was a judgment, he says. I'm now reading from the book here. It is hoped that the company will take past doings into earnest consideration and amend their ways. Um, so, and others agreed. Uh, working on a Sunday was a desecration because it was a Lord's Day. Those suddenly carried away into eternity, Reverend Dr. Begg said, must have known that they were transgressing the law of God. The accident happened on a Sunday, right? And so, what's the remedy? Well, don't travel by train on a Sunday. Um, the but I think the time frame in which this happened, though, mm. is one of those that it's a, I was gonna, uh, please tell me if this is the wrong term, it's a man-made disaster. It's a, it's a disaster involving things that men have made, both the thing that's carrying people mm. and the structure on which it happened. Frankly, true. And yet, Reverend Begg can't doesn't see that uh, perspective at all. Mm. It is still a transgression of, of God's of a law. divine of a divine law, okay. and so the the punishment is divine intervention. Yeah. Um, not only you know as, as an example to others, but just to punish these wrongdoers in this specific specific yeah. time and place. But undoubtedly. Um, you know, as, as, as uh, the French would say, pour encourager les autres, to encourage the others not to travel by train mm. on Sunday. However, I think we should be uh, clear, uh, Kev, that, that this surely wasn't the first man-made disaster. Right? You could argue many cultures uh, historically have, have stories like the Tower of Babylon, yeah. right? where, where a, a disaster is man-made through communication failures, right? And of course, as, as many of us would know the story, if you do know the story, it's, 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 these are communication failures that are introduced by the divine, right? To, to sow confusion among different languages. And so all of a sudden, you can't coordinate work anymore. And the whole yep. building project, you know, we're now talking about the construction industry, yeah. goes haywire. It's fascinating that even today, we still have accident reports that essentially claim communication sure. problems as the source, right? As the nucleus yeah. of, of, of the trouble that the project ended up in. Um, but I, I think Beck is doing more than just um, uh, denying the, the man-made nature of this particular disaster. I think, um, and, and that's certainly the theme of the book, um, he is finding a source for the suffering, right? And pinpointing the source. And in some sense, that's enormously comforting for those who didn't suffer because it allows them to say, look, it was sp specific to these people, to their choices, to their moral choices mm. to travel on a Sunday, yeah. uh, to do these things at that time and place. And so I can feel safe as long as I don't do that. Mm. Right? And so, um, and I think we've always struggled with, in on the one hand, explaining disasters, and on the other hand, dealing with, the suffering that follows from them. And if we make those two explanations coincide, in whatever way we do that, I think we land in a world of hurt and trouble. Mm -hmm.
You contrast that in your book with, I think, probably an incident that's in the next chapter of the book, which was a uh, which was um, an earthquake, something that is still enormously topical at the moment yes. in um, yeah. in uh, in Mexico and elsewhere. Um, but earthquakes are quite often something that we don't believe has any human interaction. Yes, it becomes, and yet yeah, it yeah. happens. Yeah. So you. Your book provides a contrast from one chapter to the next. Mm. And you can just explain the, no, for the sure, significance for sure. of the Lisbon earthquake. So the Lisbon earthquake happened in 1755. So this is almost a, a century before the Tay Bridge disaster. Uh, well, more than a century before the Tay Bridge disaster. And um, I mean, the mid-1700s are, are, are seen as, uh, as, as the, um, uh, a, a good part of the beginning of the, the various European enlightenments. Uh, and this would then... Uh, essentially be uh, mostly the French Enlightenment that reflects on this. But Enlightenment obviously was this, this huge, large-scale movement away from um, relying on, on church and crown to supply the meaning of life, to supply the laws, to supply the ways by which we were to live. It was questioning we the fundamentals. Not only that yeah. questioning, but also understanding that we ourselves had been equipped with a brain to do our own yeah. thinking, right? And so the breakaway of the individual uh, and the autonomy of the individual to develop thoughts of their own mm -hmm. uh, away from the strictures of church and crown. And so um, then this earthquake happens. And you're right. It is very difficult to make the argument that an earthquake is a man-made disaster. Um, it's not that we don't try. Even recently in <laughs> Italy, right, Laguila, which was mm -hmm. a significant disaster, the, um, some of the uh, seismologists and geologists involved in uh, supposedly predicting earthquakes in central Italy are in jail today mm -hmm. for mispredicting that one. And so even though we could argue that this is, you know, an act of God, which mm -hmm. I, you know, I know is a problematic term that we might want to talk about anyway, but... Um, we seek human agency behind it or its consequences nonetheless. Mm. Once again, because it probably allows us to, to put a finger on the suffering and say, look, we found the nucleus. We found the source of why these things hurt so many people. And you know what? We're dealing with it, right? They're in jail. Um, but back to 1755, um, it, it, in some sense, although, I mean, some people, some authors and, and historians make more of, out of it than others, um, but is, is known as a turning point in our thinking about disasters uh, in, uh, in, in the West. Um, uh, Leibniz, uh, uh, you know, around at the time, you know, known for the Leibnizian theodicy, which essentially says, you know, the world that we have currently is the best of all possible mm. worlds, which means that even if disasters happen, they happen for the good of humanity. That is, there is probably a divine plan behind this that we don't know because of our limited, yep. um, limited cognitive capacity and sure. ontological capacity. And so... Um, uh, Voltaire, it's a, a name for, uh, for somebody who wasn't called Voltaire at all, but, you know, as a, as a sort of a, uh, a nom de guerre, mm -hmm. I think, a sort of a, 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 a pseudonym. Um, um, he, um, he, he wrote the, uh, the, the, the Poème sur le désastre de, de Lisbonne, um, which was a huge parody on this Leibnizian idea, right? How is it possible, he asks, that we have, that we have, um, a small baby, right, um, dying of thirst and hunger, on lying on the breast of, of his mother, who is is deceased in this earthquake. How can that possibly benefit humanity in some grand scheme? Right? Where does this fantasy come from? Help me, help me understand this. Mm. Um, 
Um, and then, of course, he goes on to write Candide, right, which is a, which is a huge parody on the on the entire idea of Leibnizian theodicy, saying that you know disasters happen for the best. We can learn from them. Mm-hmm. Um, and in a sense, it's fascinating that we still subscribe to this Leibnizian idea even today with our accident investigations, right, where we go, yeah, no, it happened. Um, and, and in fact, you know, Jim Reason even you know in some <laughs> one of his books saying that. Um, or a foreword, actually, to a book on accident investigation in aviation, saying that, you know, you know these are terrible disasters, but we've learned a lot. We've, you know, the lesson is paid for in blood. Mm. But still, I mean, we are in a much better world now because of the learnings from these disasters that we paid for in blood. And there are, you know, there are definitely Leibnizian mm. um, traces through that c- commitment that he makes there. And so... Um, and that, too, is a way of giving suffering meaning, right? You didn't suffer in vain. Yes, you are now dead, and your family doesn't have the father, son, mother, whatever it is. Um, but others are better for it because we no longer build airplanes with square windows and, you know, think we can pump them up, you know, mm. for example. So. Yeah. I think um, we hear that perspective commonly in... Um, in some leadership discussions that, that have leadership statements that are being made <clears throat> in terms of the importance of acknowledging failures um, is that learning from failures. I mean, that's that's an echo of the discussion that's been going for 200 years is that, yeah, look, I did make mistakes, but I've learned from it. And, and it, it's a core element of our preventative approach through legislation and through safety is that we want to link it back through, if we learn from an error, learn from a disaster, we've got a good chance of stopping that happening in the future or reducing the consequence of it. But it doesn't seem to me that the conversation has progressed very far if we're still having that discussion. Be- beyond the discussion that Voltaire and Leibniz had mm-hmm. in, in the yeah. mid-1700s. No, not much. Uh, y- you're right. Um, However, I think we should make a distinction between the, 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 the valor and the value of learning from failure and learning from things that go wrong, which I think is a commitment that we can morally and meaningfully make to mm-hmm. each other and to those who are uh, de- left to deal, deal with the consequences. On the one hand, and trying to explain why suffering happens on the other. Right? These are, I think, two very different psychological, sociological, and perhaps even moral pathways. Mm. Yeah, I think we're, uh, we're in some way... <clears throat> trying to console the, the the people by saying, "Well, look, it's it's how he would have wanted to go," or um, you know, it's it, it's they're absurd yeah. phrases mm-hmm. that don't really stand up for uh, for examination. But the purpose for them is is discussed, I think, in your book in terms yeah. of wh- how do we uh, establish resilience in a society and to family members, how do we look at those coping skills? And these phrases that we have uh, through grief and, and disasters is part of that strengthening the moral core or the resilience of the society and the families in terms of understanding what's happened trying to give them a pathway to cope. And yet, and yet, I think that is exactly where the tension lies, Kev, which is the tension that's at the heart of the, the book, at least intellectually, which is, on the one hand, we've become ever better at explaining disasters. At least we could claim this, mm-hmm. right? Um, from 1755 onwards, uh, I mean, including the Tay Bridge, which, which had a very 
uh, extensive te technical investigation. Yeah, it was almost a royal commission. Uh, absolutely, extent. absolutely. It was, yeah. and, and it and it didn't stop at the technical. It mm. stopped. I mean, it went into the procurement and the payment and the sourcing and and um, you know mm. the financial picture behind building that bridge and some of the. Uh, engineering decisions that were made under financial duress and all of that. And so it was, I think it's a good example, mm. uh, certainly for its time, of, of how we should do an investigation like that. An enlightened investigation. An enli nice, nicely put, mm. nicely put. An enlightened investigation. But, and this is this is exactly where the Beg versus, you know, the Reverend Beg mm. versus the technical investigation, technical, social, psychological, organizational, and even political uh, investigation into the Taybridge disaster. Tension shows up. Because what does the investigation show? The investigation shows that there are lots of causes for this train to plunge into the water and kill these people. Mm. Lots of causes. Um, and, and, you know, as Eric Hallnagel would nicely say, right, you know, wherever you look for cause, that's where you find it, right? And, and so cause is something you construct given your background, given the questions yeah. you raise, given, given the back, background that you bring professionally, you know, you're, anyway. So um, lots of causes. They're technical, they're political, they're financial, they're engineering knowledge. They are, you know, you know they, so, but the issue is the better we get at enlightening ourselves and our readers and, and, and whoever needs to learn from these disasters about the enormously complex web of causes behind disasters like these, mm -hmm. the lousier we get at explaining the suffering. Because yeah. we don't want suffering to be explained by saying, well, you know, this is really just the result of normal people doing, people doing normal work in mm -hmm. what seemed like a normal organization or set of organization in political context everyone at the time. In other words, everybody was doing what they were thought was they were thinking was right, mm. and then your father <clears throat> died, right? That that is not a satisfactory way to deal with suffering. So if someone shows up and says, "Oh, but I know why you why your father suffered. He traveled on a Sunday." Oh, right. Now we know. Right? And so mm. it's that tension. It's that tension that's at the heart of this whole debate. Mm. One of the things that you uh, discuss <clears throat> in your book is uh, this the concept uh, of act of God, which is what uh, Reverend Begg talks about. I see echoes of that, um, of the, the divine uh, context. Um, when we're talking about incidents and disasters now, things that are inherently dangerous, or, well, you know, there's nothing we could do about that, or, um, you know, it was bound to happen. We sort of have these dismissive um, terms that we use when something happens, which implies that there's nothing we can do about that. I don't think they are dismissive, nor do I think that they imply that we can do nothing about it. Uh, in fact, I think Beg is, uh, is an example of the opposite. Um, what it signifies to me, if you say act of God, it is, uh, I mean, so, I mean, apart from the insurance context where, <laughs> yes. where we essentially say, you know, act of, that's something yeah. that we don't insure for, yeah. right? And so um, it's, it's an actuarial euphemism, mm. all right, in that sense. But um, the... But apart from that, if we say act of God in any other context, we are reading some type of agency into the causation of the disaster, right? Or the bad thing that happened. Something or some force is behind this nonetheless, right? Because it's an act, act agency, yes. right? Of of God or some divine or some 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 creature, something that we cannot control through our normal means, rational mm. means. Um, Except that Beg then comes in and says, oh, well, if it is an act of God, what's the result? What's what's the remedy? Pray harder. Don't travel on Sundays. Be be more pious. 
right? And so there are ways mm. for people to respond to that agency that they've read into the causation of the disaster. Now, yeah. I don't know whether it whether it helps, but I'm not here to impugn anybody's reliance on, on, yeah. on those remedies, right? To try to yeah. control bad things around them, right? Misfortune. But one of the themes in your book, I think, was that <clears throat> that type of position has become almost almost a point of ridicule in our attention on science and our, our faith in, more in science than in religion yeah. and divinity. Yeah. Um, that's that's a that conflict it's a, is, it's, is a it theme is, all the way it's through. It's deep and it's ter and it's it's unresolved and 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 not sufficiently commented on, which is why I think it is so incredibly. Uh, important for a book like this to at least be, be have some visibility in the safety community, mm -hmm. right? Um, uh, which is we are so getting so good at um, at at, at ex well we get we're still lousy at it in many ways too, but so good at explaining disasters and and with complexity theory and saying you know this is um, this is how these accidents happen. Just look at the space shuttle Challenger, right? O rings mm -hmm. you mentioned it before. Um, the that's all everybody remembers. It, well, and it's, it's, and it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, on the other hand, though, I mean, that disaster has been sliced in all kinds of yeah. ways, right? And and so we know so much about it. And what does Diane Vaughan say? Say ultimately, she says, this is the banality of accidents, mm. right? They're really just banal events. They're yeah. not exciting or hugely. Um, they're just about normal people in a bureaucracy doing the normal things that people in bureaucracies do, ignore, don't look at, uh, don't read, you know, um, that we do every day. And then you blow something up, right? Um, but that's not consolation. So we get ever better at explanation. We get ever lousier at consolation. Hmm. One of the things that <clears throat> was different about End of Heaven is that in something that I... Uh, uh, God has a as predominantly a safety book because Decker is a safety risk. It's in it's in my discipline to, to read your books. So I came at it with a safety vision, and quickly I realised this is not strictly a a safety book in the similar uh, vein as others. In that you do talk about Voltaire, you do talk about uh, theology, you do talk about sociology. There uh, there's Descartes, there's Weber, all of these things that I you know, read bits about in sociology, but have been distant or, or just omitted from the safety management OHS dialogue over the last 20, 30 years to my experience. Um, as a result, it got me heading off to lots of other books to think, oh, wow, is that... I'd never read the early uh, sociologists and philosophers in the safety context, which is what you do here. There's Marx, there's a couple of others, Freud even gets a go, although I'd, I'd like mm. to say that, you know, um, he'd say something like, uh, you know, an incident is still sometimes only an incident. Um, so it, um, where do you see, now that you've brought that, those people, those voices, those histories into the discussion of the morality of safety, um, how do you think that's going to, uh, what impact is that going to have? How is that going to change the dialogue? In, in safety, do you think safety will? We could have a morality of safety discussion in a conference, which, as far as I know, I've never seen. Um, mm. Do you think that's going to be one of the consequences of the way you've written this book and the the the, the evidence and the the references you brought in? Right. Let me deal with that in two parts. First, saying that um, first the morality part, and then mm. the 
you know, all, all, all these names and references and big thinkers, sure. right, and, and what they have to say about this. I don't think this is strictly moral, nor do I believe that we are not talking about morality or safety. I think we're talking about the morality of safety every time we talk about safety, every yeah. time we put up a poster on the wall, right? We, we surrender to a particular moral model of how these yep. things are, are supposed to work. Whenever we say, uh, you know, we, we commit to 10 golden rules or we, um, the safety is our number one priority. I mean, these are, these are moral commitments somehow, right? And so whenever we organize a conference and say, you know, this is important stuff, it's a moral commitment. So, um, so I, I think that is uh, indivisible and mm -hmm. indivisibly connected to what we do. But back to the, the, you know, to Freud, to Weber, mm -hmm. to Voltaire, to, um, um, to Leibniz, um, to, uh, to, to, to other big thinkers in this. I have become convinced that safety as taught today is, um, and, and as practiced today, is a profoundly ahistorical field. Um, I believe that that creates a lack of humility and a lack of knowledge and depth and insight that would help all of us greatly if we had some of it. Um, ultimately, and that's the claim um, that I make in this book and will make in others as well, is that these are all ways of somehow trying to cope with human misfortune. Right? And um, we have relied for millennia on a whole number of religious traditions to carry the, the heavy load on that for us. Right, to not only um, explain human misfortune um, as in why it happens, but also to give people ways to avert it um, mm. and give people ways to cope with it and with the suffering that it generates after it has happened. And as long as religion was doing that, there was a wonderful overlap in explanation and consolation. Right? You can you can console people and explain all at the same time. Right? Oh, you you know they violated the rules, didn't pray hard enough, and thus mm. this is the okay. Well, so let's let's pray harder. You know, and so they they, they overlap nicely. Um, now, for the last couple of hundred years, we have seen a massive shift. Uh, in our thinking about um, human misfortune and, and what we should be doing to prevent it from happening and how we should respond to it when it happens and the suffering that it creates. Um, however, I don't think the shift is as massive as we believe it is. I think much of what happens in safety today, um, including many of the rituals that we have, right, the little safety moments that at, at the beginning of the meetings, they're like prayer, right? They're like sitting around at the table and bowing your heads and folding your hands and saying, you know, I saw my neighbor, you know, mowing the grass with flip-flops, you know, mm -hmm. and so I stopped and, uh, you know, and so it's these little moments of confession and, 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 and so, um, and then prayer and, you know, and then appealing to a, to a larger ideal that we then should all bow before. And, um, we have this when we have the ten golden rules around our necks. You yeah. know, it's like the mezuzah. You know, it's like having you know, it's it's like having the the parts of the Torah on your forehead. You know, and so uh, many of the rituals are are in in fact deeply religious in many ways. So I rely uh, not only because I I I, I have the voracious interest and, and thirst for understanding and reading and, and 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 gathering all these sources, but I rely on this and want to talk to it in these books. Um, to make fellow, you know, to make people in safety, colleagues, aware of the fact that the problems they're struggling with, the questions that they are confronted with, are not unique to this era. They're not mm -hmm. new. They're not the first time that we're trying to address them as humanity, right? Mm -hmm. In fact, thinkers much bigger than ourselves have done some pretty cool mm -hmm. stuff in this area. 
So by uh, by being, um, what was your word? A historic. A historic. A historic. Yeah. Um, one of the consequences of that is that um, safety is still sees itself and still is, promotes itself in a way as a new uh, discipline. Mm-hmm. I was going to say new science. Not sure it's a science, but we can we can argue about that some other time. But um, uh, it's it's seen as something immature, juvenile, still under in at the start of development, whereby going back and having a look at great thinkers, even back to, to Plato on, uh, sure. on moral discussions of su- suffering and that relate to safety. Well, and, and the governance a, consequences for yeah. what you should do as, uh, as, as people do not have these things go wrong. That gives us a context mm. for safety that is as long as the Christian religion. And informative. Which... Yeah. Which should get us, uh, as well, I was going to say, us young, but new safety people to actually have a, a very different perspective on, and understanding about how they can address safety and how they should talk about safety. But one thing I wanted to, to ask you specifically: there was a you mentioned uh, in the book um, anxiety, and I just wanted to talk briefly about anxiety because <clears throat> anxiety is as 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 close in this book as we get to a mental health disorder or illness, which is an enormously contemporary issue in, in health and safety. I wondered if you could just talk to me about um, how the fragility of existence is leading to, exist, uh, to anxiety, and also how dread um, applies in our management of safety and our, hopefully our preventative strategies. Let's first talk about anxiety. Um, anxiety is, uh, at least psychologically, a, a non-directional fear. Right? Fear has a, has a target associated with it. Anxiety doesn't necessarily have a target associated with it. Um, but the, um, the, the sense of, the, as, you, as you nicely call it, the fragility of, of our own existence and that of, that of our colleagues, particularly in safety-critical uh, work, um, needs to find an outlet somewhere, needs to find ways to, to, to divine, and as a verb, right, divine and, and, and sort of control um, that, that anxiety that, that comes uh, with it. Um, the ways in which we do that is, once again, by the sorts of rituals that we've been talking about, um, by writing huge, you know, thora- uh, sorry, Torah-length documents as safety management systems, right? And, uh, mm-hmm. no, no, it's all documented, it's all documented, right? Um, and um, uh, by which we, we appeal to fellow human beings with slogans and, uh, and, and, and again, these prayer-like moments of, uh, uh, of, uh, of, uh, of a toolbox gathering, for example, mm-hmm. or, uh, or a safety moment. Um, that is... I think if we are modest about it, we can probably see in those activities and rituals um, the sorts of ways that humanity has been dealing with um, the anxiety of the the fragility of an, of, of existence um, for millennia, right? And that there's nothing unique about the uh, mm. the the heart of the only their expression has changed, right? And it's become more secular, supposedly, yeah. right? Mm. Um, then to dread, you know, Kierkegaard obviously uh, wrote a lot about that. And, and the idea of Kierkegaardian dread is that we have lots of choices to make things go incredibly wrong, should we so desire. 
Um, and this goes from the, um, it's, it's the ability to stare into the abyss, right, of um, um, putting your hand in the fire, right? You are, you are I mean, yeah, your, your physiology is sort of wired for it not to happen, mm. right, because there's, there's reflexes to pull back from these sorts of things. But with enough willpower, we can make it happen, right? We can jump before a train. We can, we can derail a train if we want to, if we're driving it. We can actually, when we're driving an airplane, we can crash the airplane. Right. We could check our phone while driving. We could check our phone while driving. Mm. These are these are these are, and every time we do that, yeah, exactly. So Kierkegaard makes the argument that it is that this freedom to uh, to to do devastatingly wrong things that have significant consequences for us and our fellow human beings create this creates this dread, um, and um, that accompanies us the whole time as we as we go through our existence in the safety critical uh, domain. Mm. One of the things, again, I said as a safety professional reading this book, um, and given your other books, um, I was interpreting many of these things in terms of culture. Mm. And yet, and I didn't check, but I'm pretty certain that culture is a word that is absent from this book, End of Heaven. Um, how... Um, we, when we're talking about culture, many of the investigations of disasters and failures and um, Enron, I think you touch on, and others, sometimes those investigations say, oh, it's a, a failure of culture. We had a dysfunctional culture or the management culture was wrong. So that's, that's bled into, into safety is that, we're well, if culture's the problem, we must change the culture to solve the problem. Um, how uh, am I, uh, is my readership, my imposition of culture on this book, Am I, am I wrong? Is it is it a flawed context in reading this, or is can I interpret your book of End of Heaven in a, as a criticism of culture or discussion of culture? So for my um, my real assault on um, the concept of safety culture and its its increasing our increasing reliance on it to carry the explanatory load of all mm. kinds of disasters. Uh, you'll have to wait for um, one of the next books uh, that, is, that is coming, uh, which I'm co-authoring with uh, with Drew Ray. Um, mm -hmm. But um, uh, and, and I think I can be very quick in uh, in uh, in summarizing the assault that we would that we would unleash, which is safety culture has become the new human error. It's essentially a a, a very cheap um, retreat for those uh, who are. Um, uh, inclined to blame human agency um, for the disaster that happened. Um, rather than saying we've got poor human decision makers in the organization, we just have a poor safety culture. Well, how do we typically measure safety culture? By, in fact, going to individuals and asking them about their attitudes, beliefs, values, right? Mm -hmm. And so um, it, culture is thereby simply the, the, the literally a simple aggregate of these attitudes, actions, decisions, values, beliefs, and um, um, relying on it as an explanation is um, takes us right back to the almost the, the, the sort of the, the, the prehistory of human factors and, and, and modern thinking about this stuff. Um, as for culture in the book, uh, yeah, no, I don't think you're right. I certainly didn't deliberately mention the word, um, though. Of course, it's 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 thick with culture. It talks about the Hebrews and the Greeks and the yep. Romans and the and, yeah. and the. Um, uh, you know, Victorian English. Yeah. Let's not so, forget the Egyptians. The Egyptians, sorry, the yeah, Egyptians. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so without stealing the thunder of, of a new book, um, what I wanted to 
um, ask with this one, with, with end of heaven then, is um, how uh, this seems a real a book for our times. I was going to do that. That's a big claim. But it's something that it almost needs a stopgap or a, a, a stop, reflect, think about how we've been looking at safety forever. Here is a package of historical context and uh, non-safety discipline uh, thinking that's been brought in. Um, it's been out for six months. Hmm. Um, I found it a very satisfying book. It was clearly satisfying to, to read, uh, to write. Um, is this a type of uh, an approach to your writing that you might uh, visit again in the future, given that you're still writing a lot and you have another book coming out in a couple of months' time? What's, what's the next stage of this type of book for you? Okay. I, uh, that's a good question. I, I certainly hope that I have, uh, uh, have already run out or will very quickly run out of uh, experiences this painful. <laughs> of suffering, to, yes. Yeah, to, um, mm. uh, to drive the writing. Um, but for sure, um, there is, um, so the, the, the forthcoming one uh, in a few months' time is, is called The Safety Anarchist, and it, uh, it relies uh, very much on, um, on, on ideas not only of anarchism, but, uh, but of, of religion as an explanation for what we do in safety, um, um, political ideology for what we do in safety, um, the safety profession as a priesthood. Um, and, and so it certainly revisits many of these themes mm. and, and tries to understand if we're going to make progress in safety from where we are now, how do we, how do we break out of the institutions and the constraints mm. and the obligations that we've wrapped ourselves into? Um, and so, yes, that book. And then there's, there's definitely more ideas about, about just culture, about blame, about restoration, because these two have very long historical traces, right? How do we... How do we meaningfully, fairly, um, and uh, and appropriately, and justly deal with the consequences mm. and the suffering that disasters create? When I was uh, <clears throat> when I was reading End of Heaven, um, it came to mind that in some ways it's a curiosity for uh, of Decker is that it's it's a different approach, it's a different um, discussion than what we're familiar with, and curiosity. I take as a real positive. And I'll give you a quick literary comparison. Um, P.D. James, famous for detective novels. But she also read, uh, wrote Children of Men. Um, <clears throat> science fiction, totally, uh, you know, political discussion. It was a bizarre curiosity out of the, the expected norms of her production. And I certainly see End of Heaven as a curiosity as well. But I'd also like to point out that curiosities are quite often things that from which we've learned the most, because it's a new, uh, a new perspective on something that we've got comfortable with. And I think that this does shake up the comfort, gives us some anxiety. I think um, uh, Hopkins talks about uh, giving us a sense of unease, but it also gives us a historical context for that unease. And I think it's, it's all the more important for being a curiosity. That's uh, originally uh, Carl Weick, uh quote and concept, the okay. unease, by the way. But okay. Yeah, yeah. All right. So thanks very much for talking to us about uh, End of Heaven. My pleasure. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Safety at Work Talks as much as I did in recording it.
I'm always keen to hear feedback on the Safety at Work blog or this new Safety at Work Talks podcast series. You can email me at jonesk at safetyatwork.biz, that's B-I-Z, with your comments or suggestions um, for other interviews. Um, I'd, uh, I'll uh, read them all, and I appreciate all your efforts. Uh, my name is Kevin Jones, and thank you very much for listening to this podcast.